I'm Ryan Nidell, host of 15 Minutes to Freedom, your daily action guide to getting shit done. Today, I have an incredible guest on the show, a man that not only is a listener, but is someone that is changing the lives of thousands of people, if not even more, from the state of California. I have the esteemed scholar, the psychiatrist, Ed Kaftarian. Ed, how are you today? Doing great. Thanks, Ryan. <laughs> no Happy problem. I, I couldn't be more excited to have you. So, Ed, I have to ask right out of the chute. You've seen some crazy things inside the, I'll say, treatment facilities of California. Like you're, you're part of San Quentin or have been as far as the telepsychiatry agency that you, that you own and operate. I know we can't get into the in-depth things of individual cases, and Lord knows I wouldn't want to elicit that. But if there was one limiting factor that you see more frequently than not that could be addressed at a high level that could impact the listener, what would that be? So um, are you referring to, to lessons that, that I've learned just uh, speaking with inmates and how they apply to, to uh, life outside of a prison? Absolutely. So, I mean, there's so much there. I, I don't even know where to start or when, you know, when this would end, but I'll just be brief about it and say, <laughs> uh, you know, over, over seeing thousands of patients in my life and managing mental health programs and, in fact, creating and, and founding some mental health programs, you kind of see uh, from soup to nuts uh, everything that uh, inmates can go through from the time that they're uh, admitted into the jail or prison uh, throughout their experience and then when they're about to be discharged and then life outside of, of prison. Um, and you would find, although, although inmates um, have some really sort of distinct types of backgrounds that are foreign to a lot of people, um, they also share experiences that we've, we all have shared. Um, now, the underlying assumption that we, in, as psychiatrists in this space, have to, have to carry with us is that inmates are coming from a background of trauma. So, so you almost have to assume that for everybody you, you talk to. And the reason why you need to assume that is because if you don't discover that on your own, if, you don't, if you, you're not looking for it and you miss it, you can treat all sorts of other conditions, but if you're not actually paying attention to why that patient got to, to that seat and why they are who they are, you're going to miss a lot. And um, I would say, to get back to your original question, I would say that um, the big thing, the biggest lesson that, that I've taken personally and also that I, I see in my life and just, you know, not only my professional life, but my personal life is that people have cognitive distortions. And you've talked about it many times in your podcast about how life is, so it's a matter of perspective, right? So, so every, there's no truth, okay? It's your truth. And, and or there, you could say there's no truth or there's a million truths. And there's nothing that's good or bad. It just is what it is. And what I found with working with inmates and also non-inmates is that um, just patients of all kinds and also observing uh, people in, in my life is that people come, come 
from a position of distorting their perceptions about other people and about their lives. Um, I mean, there are countless cognitive distortions, you know, generalizing, catastrophizing. There are all sorts of terms that we can put to it, black and white thinking, uh, looking at things through a negative lens, distortion uh, in the form of confirmation bias where, where uh, you, you have a set, set of beliefs and everything that comes into your life, you, you judge it based on that belief and you select out the things that go against your belief and you accept the things and events and experiences that reinforce your already preconceived beliefs. So uh, that's a start, huh? <laughs> oh, there, there's so many pearls of wisdom there, Ed. Like when, I, when I'm hearing you say are some things that, again, I want to say it outwardly. I obviously have zero training when it comes to the, the craft and medical profession that you've dedicated your life to. And you've shared with me, which has caused new rabbit holes for me to chase down some of this cognitive distortion. As again, I believe that was one of the first emails you actually sent in was, hey, just so you know, this term does exist. Do a little research on it. Like you're spot on, but let me help you clear out some of the clutter. And I'm immensely appreciative of that myself. But in that, you touch base on traumas in life. So I, I call those original incidences. Like there's something deep in our subconscious that happened, you know, I believe it's always between the ages of four and 12 or so I've covered, but there's just these things that happen that are my truth, that are my traumatic event that I can't really compare it to somebody else's because it's only mine. And that has formed my belief systems and patterns all throughout my life until I was forced to have a pattern interrupt. Now pattern interrupt, it sounds like could be if I'm in the penal system, it could be the fact of I'm interrupted because I got caught committing a crime, or it could be the fact of in my life, I hired a coach to start shining a light on the places of my soul that I didn't want to look, and I had no choice but to look that way. Is, am I right. hitting right? Is this, is this really what this looks like? Absolutely. I mean, I think you're, you're speaking from your instincts and the feelings that you have uh, that that are sort of deep within your brain. And I would say that uh, the what we what we do is as as psychologists psychiatrists I'm, I happen to be a psychiatrist but psychologists also do this uh, we we do shine a light on our patients and say look I know you've been looking in this mirror and you've been seeing a certain person and you've been looking outside in that world and you've been seeing a certain type of world but let me let me just shift your body a little bit and make you look this way and see everything else that is happening. Now, you know, whatever percentage, 95%, 99% of the things that are happening, probably actually far more greater than 99% of all the things that are happening around us, we're unaware of. And a lot of the process of living is automated, is, is auto, on autopilot. You know, all the things that we do, we get up in the morning, we brush our teeth, we eat, we do whatever we got to do. You know, 95% of that is already things that we're in the habit of. of. When you get in the car and you fasten your seatbelt, you're, you're probably not ever thinking about that process. You're just doing it. Maybe, um, maybe there are other things, other ways of thinking that you have grown so accustomed to that you have zero insight into that. And when I say you, I don't mean Ryan. I mean everybody, including mm -hmm. myself. And so we operate in significant bias uh, almost continuously. And, and the people who are able, look, you can't force self-awareness. That's just a fact. Um, now, in your case, 
you, you decided that you wanted to be self-aware. Mm-hmm. So something clicked, whatever, whatever reason that, that whatever reason you decided, you decided that. So you took charge and you said, you know what, I'm going to make a change in my life. And then you built on it and now it's become a habit. And, um, you know, a, uh, uh, a famous philosopher, uh, Michael Jordan, okay, <laughs> not really a famous philosopher, but um, I think that some people credit him for saying, you are what you habitually do. So your habits are what creates you. Mm-hmm. And so the way that I look at this is at my role as a psychiatrist is not only to treat, you know, uh, really uh, significant mental illness, but for also for people who are just struggling with, with, uh, cognitive distortions and biases and, and habits that have been so ingrained. I also try and give them a different perspective. But the thing is, you know, we, it, it, it's up to that person to decide to, to actually open up their eyes because most people have their eyes shut um, because it's easier that way. And uh, it, it's, it's easier but less fulfilling life, right? Of course. Um, I'm going to stop there because I think I'll keep talking if you don't stop me. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, this is, this is the most fascinating thing to me as I start really diving into this with you is you, you look at it and you're saying so many things from that we are all inherently operating with our own belief system that until we all become self-aware in some capacity or are forced to see that self-awareness as a possibility that we're almost stuck on this repetitive loop. And so one of the things yeah. that I get quite often from you know, either listeners or people on social media, doesn't, I guess it doesn't really matter where they come from, but you know, how do I know if I need coaching or if I need help? And my answer is, you're not broken. You're not, inherently there is no, again, I don't believe there's right and wrong. It's what serves you and what doesn't. And in the moment, if you think there's a better opportunity for you, if something's calling you to reach out to somebody, then that little momentary window exists where you're considering a new possibility and you just need somebody to push open the door so you can see the other side. Right. And, and I would, I would, I think that the, the point you made is very salient. And I would say that uh, really it's show them that the door is even there. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's their, it's their responsibility to, to, to open that door and walk through it. You can show them Hey, there's a door. You you've been think you've been looking at a, tra- a a dark room that has no doors and there's no way out. My job as a coach or a therapist or whatever label you want to uh, give is to say, you know what? There is an actual door there, and uh, and and maybe that door is locked, and you hold the key to that door. Um, but most people want to stay in that room. And I would say that you know if I can just speak directly to the audience for one moment. Mm-hmm. And I would say, audience, you know about 1% of what you think you know, okay? So, so you need to know that you may think you have things figured out. You may think you have figured out what makes you, you tick, what you, makes your wife tick, uh, the intentions of other people, the way the world works. Nobody knows that. Nobody. Um, it's, it's not an all or nothing thing. It's just that as you progress in your life, you try and gain as much knowledge as you can. But if you look at it, you know, as far as I know, there's no way to read a textbook with your eyes closed. So you have to open your eyes and you have to open your mind. And I can tell you audience, I'm talking to the audience now, you have your eyes closed. 
And I do too. And I'm trying to open my eyes just as Ryan has been trying to open his eyes for the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. But it's, uh, but you have to under, operate under the assumption that your eyes are still closed, even if you think you're enlightened. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in saying that, that's another pressure point for me is this, this journey of self-awareness or personal discovery, or as I refer to it, expansion, there is not a day on the calendar that I can circle and say that I made it. Like it's a, it, I quote unquote make it when I'm no longer breathing and I get to experience whatever the next step of existence can be or whatever. Again, you've listened to the show enough to know that religion is this unique topic for me of what that really means. But it's this refreshing thing to hear from you that the journey that I believe that I'm on and the fact that I don't believe it ever stops when you do it quote unquote right. And again, I'll say what serves me is to never stop this. Like I enjoy learning at a ravenous pace on everything that goes into creating something that pushes me to think differently. Like I'm not steadfast in my beliefs that what I believe in this moment, I can only know and believe what I've been exposed to. Yeah, you know, Ryan, um, it's really interesting because uh, historically, um, people talk about, uh, you know, flip-flopping like it's a bad thing, right? Like if somebody has a certain opinion um, like, and we can talk, I, I want, I want to stay away from the current day politics, but let's, let's go, you know, politics historically, mm -hmm. uh, when people have quote unquote changed their minds or they flip flopped, uh, they usually get scrutiny from the public. And, um, sometimes you need to change your minds. You ha you need to be open to that. And, um, I would say that I, I think it's really important that you always, uh, uh, reassess the situation as it's happening. Um, and not, and not just get stuck in one point of view. Oh, absolutely. And I really start to go down this, what I'll call rabbit holes. We started talking about tribalism. Like I, I truly believe we are the combination and culmination of the life events that have happened up until this moment. And by the nature of that, if we think about it as you, the listener right now, you grew up in a neighborhood, you were exposed to most likely the same religious beliefs as other people in your church or congregation. Your parents instilled their belief system upon you. They hung out with other people that also had their same give or take belief system. And whether, yeah. you, would, whether you wanted this or not, this was the operating system that was pushed upon you before you got to choose what operating system you wanted. And it's not right. belittling anybody's religion. It's not belittling your family. It's just factual. You, you didn't have a chance. Right. Well, a good point. I would say that uh, let me tell you a story. There was a town, um, I grew up in the East Coast, and there was a town in, in, in the area that I grew up in where I didn't really go there very often, but once in a while, I had a friend there, and, 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 and there was some business I had to do once in a while in that town, and I would get in my car, and I would always get lost, okay? So I would get in my car, and I would either miss the exit, or I wouldn't operate with a map. I'd just go and say, well, I, I'll figure it out. Um, but the problem is that this was a rural town and all the roads were like five miles long. So if you take the wrong turn, you go down that road for five miles. And it was the most frustrating and aggravating thing for me to be on the wrong path. And, and I found that once I actually got on the right path, this sense of calm and peace would be, would come over me. So, so, uh, you know, I would get really upset and angry, in fact, that, oh, my God, I'm on the wrong path again. Now I have to sit there, and I'm, I'm going the wrong way. And I think for some people, they've been put on a path of that, that wrong way from a very early age, whether it is 
uh, a religion they may not really truly connect with. And and again, I, I you know, I, I don't have any opinion on religion for this podcast. I would just say that in some cases it could be religion. It could, in some cases it could be like a way of life. It could be a career choice. It could be uh, just who you are as a person, your gender even. It can be anything that, that either your parents or your society or or your friends or your community has decided is right for you. And, and you're like how I was in that car going in the wrong direction. And the key is, you know, you get, you, you turn that car around and that's the moment where you, you have a realization that I'm going in the wrong direction. And when you turn that car around, something magical happens. Um, even though you're not at your destination, a sense of calm and peace comes over you because you're now traveling in the right direction. And that's all it takes. And, and it's a misconception to say, or actually it's unrealistic to say that uh, you will be happy and fulfilled when you reach your destination because there is no ultimate destination. Mm-hmm. Um, the journey, the path that you're on is what is going to fulfill you. If you are on the correct path, you will be fulfilled. If you are on the incorrect path, you will be uh, full of emptiness. And, and so it's all a matter of deciding what your correct path is. And that's, that your correct path is not something that that you decide with your frontal cortex okay mm-hmm. you may navigate that path with your frontal cortex but the correct path is is driven by what is in your heart and when we say heart what we really mean by that is the core of your brain the the the, the innermost parts of your brain the ones that were created um, over millions of years and the ones that we share with with animals um, you know, we, they, they have that same brain. Now we have another brain that, that is over that core brain and that is our cerebral cortex. And that's what can help us get to our destination or get in the way and oversteer and get us into a ditch. Yeah, man, (laughs) this is just like, my brain is exploding here. I love this stuff. So it comes back to the uh, conversation I've had with another guest of really whose thoughts are we all thinking? Like we, you like, there's this assumption that, oh, I'm creating my own thoughts. They're, they're mine. Well, kind of look at all the external stimuli that we all ingest every day. Look at the, I'll say lack of self-awareness and it's not to degrade you guys that are listening. It's just a factual thing. I feel like I'm fairly self-aware, but even then in the moment, I realize in the presence of others that have a new heightened sense of awareness that I'm still in my own process of progress and I'm still navigating the waters to the best I know how. And here we sit in this unique situation where the path that we're going down, whether we call it the monkey brain, the lizard brain, whatever the, that thing that's inside of us, that's navigating our, our thoughts and our patterns, that it can tell you to change four times as you're still on that same path after you've already turned around the first time. Like it's not an instant thing of like, Oh, it's, it's not a A to, to B to C to D in my opinion. Now, granted, I, I certainly, again, don't have the acronym or the accreditation behind, behind my name that you do, Ed, but it just seems that my life has taken these twists and turns, but I think it's imperative to make mention the twists and turns don't come based off of something getting difficult. So there's this other misnomer that I found. It's, oh, I want to well, it's, it's take an athletic event. I, I want to run a six-minute mile, and you started at 10 minutes, and you got to eight minutes, and you realized how tough it was, and so you said, well, no, I don't really want to run a six minute mile. I wasn't supposed to do that. Well, yeah. No, you just didn't want to fight through the part that sucked. Like there's a part of every journey that's just not all that fun. Yeah. So right. And, 
Go ahead. It's very. Right. I, was gonna, I mean, that's really important. And I'm an entrepreneur as well as a, as a, a doctor. And I'd say that there are parts of running a business that that, as you say, suck. And you need to you need to reframe that. I mean, I think so much of, of having mastery in your life is being able to reframe. And when I say mastery, I don't mean mastery over other people. I don't even necessarily mean mastery of your trade or your business or anything else mastery of yourself and you you are like a power, a powerful tool like a chainsaw and and you can you can do great work with that chainsaw or you can do great damage and um it's all about being able to frame things the right way and when you say uh outlasting the suck which i think is really brilliant um i've thought about that too in my times where i i was thinking man this does suck but let's remember what Ryan said, you know, you got to outlast that. And when you decide that you're going to outlast it, and I've always been a determined person, you know, for, for many, many years, you can't get through med school and, and all of the training without, uh, I mean, there are times in my internship where I literally wanted to die. Like I wanted a car to hit me because I was so tired. I was so stressed. I had the lives of these people in my hands. And, um, what I learned over the years and what, what you reinforced with me and also with your guests your, 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 and your, your audience is that there's a switch that you can kind of turn off and you can just say, look, I am not going to be influenced by every feeling that I have. Now, now and, and there's a helpful way of differentiating feelings. There's a feeling of feelings like anger and sadness and stress and fatigue. There's feelings like that. And then there are feelings of this is what my heart wants for my life. You know, this is who I love or this is what I love to do. You know, those are two separate things. And now if you, you, you can be driven by one or the other, and I choose to be driven by what my heart wants and not what the other set of feelings like the evil feelings. And, and they're not even evil. I mean, there's nothing is really evil or good. It just is what it is. And there is a purpose for that as well. Um, but but if you allow yourself to be completely driven by those empty feelings of anger and sadness and rage and narcissism and those kind of things, then um, ultimately you won't reach your goal and you will be, uh, like you said, I mean, uh, when times get tough, you're going to want to quit. And so the key is that you, you, you take that and you switch that off in your head and you say, you know what? I'm going to take care of myself. Sure, I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to sleep well. I'm going to eat well. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to take time for my family, take time for myself. You got to still do all those things. You can't shut that off because that'll find a way to, to become a problem if you don't take care of yourself. But in times where it's tough and you say, look, I know my heart wants this, but right now I don't want it because it's too hard. You have to tell yourself ahead of time, that you're going to shut that feeling down and say, I am not going to be driven by that feeling of, of over being overwhelmed. I'm going to put my head down and I'm not going to let those things sway me. And I'm just going to keep going. And what you find out is if you keep going, you keep going, then now it's going to take a bigger win to throw you off course. So you start off with the gentle breeze throwing you off course and say, you know what? I need to get back on that course. And then you, you put up that sail and you keep going. And then the, the deeper you get, the more that that gets ingrained in your habits and the, the stronger the wind has to be to break that habit. Um, 
goes for just habits like when you go to bed, when you get up. I'm a firm believer that you got to go to bed at the same time every day, get up at the same time. Generally have generally have your day mapped out. I mean, I know that people like us who are entrepreneurs who are building businesses, every day is going to be different. You're going to have all kinds of stuff that comes and throws wrenches in your day, fights for your time. All of that is going to happen. But you do have to have a compass that tells you this is where I want to go and this is how I'm going to get there. And the more direct of a path you can take, the better. The more distracted you get, uh, the more you're, you're just dancing in the breeze and you're not getting to where you ultimately go. Um, so you put that sale up. And if you see people who don't know how to sail or they don't have a sale, they're just going in circles. But people have a big, strong sale and are determined are going to go from A to B to, no matter what those wins bring you. And if those wins are against you, you find a way to harness that energy and, and still get to where you're going to go. And that actually in the, the prison system, that is actually something that a lot of people need to learn, that, uh, that, it's, that those wins may feel like they're against you, but you can actually harness those winds of change and, uh, and, and use it to your advantage. Yeah. So, Ed, there's, there's two things you brought up there. One is patterns. And patterns as far as time and go to bed and, and the, the habitual things that we do. So I have found for myself that from a very young developmental age, obviously we, we were taught or adhere to patterns, whether they're ours or somebody else's, they exist. And from an emotional standpoint, to me, they start forming how we operate as an adult. Mm -hmm. But then most people aren't aware that that exists until they're shown that that could potentially be an outcome. But in that then, we have an underlying pattern to everything that we've done in our life up until you get to a moment where you talk about, well, you also need a pattern of when you eat, when you train, when you go to sleep. If you're like, I don't want that. That's too much structure. Well, yeah, we've had an underlying pattern. Like we all have patterns. We all have that auto focused, you know, autonomous movements really. Like you said, you hop on the car in the morning, put on your seatbelt, you drive to work. Those are pretty automated processes after the first or second day on the job. You just, you're just there, you give or take same parking spaces, give or take same time to eat, same desk. Yeah. We're designed, our whole structure for optimization as human beings is based around frequency and pattern. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. And we're always looking for patterns, right? So if you see us, if you're walking in the woods and you see a stick, a long stick, your, your, your brain will look at that and say, is this a snake? And then it'll look for patterns to, and, and say, well, a, 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 something long like that, that's in a certain shape, may be threatening to me. And so we're actually, that our evolution and our biology is designed to look for patterns. That's why people see Mother Teresa in a cookie. Um, because yeah. we are, because our frontal cortex is developed. And in fact, it's not even just a matter of, of our higher levels of thinking. It's, or it's also ingrained deep within us. Um, animals see patterns as well, not as much as humans, but we are, we've been designed that way for survival. Um, and, and we, we take great comfort in, in consistency and in habits and in routines. And in uh, a lot of the inmates that I've talked to over the years, um, they have not had healthy patterns of behavior. They've either had days where they have zero structure and it's like they get up and say, okay, what am I going to do today? And then really they get into trouble that way. Whereas the people who have jobs, who have a focus, who have a purpose, something they believe in, um, they feel a sense of community, 
uh, they have less isolation. Those are the people who've decided that here's a pattern that I like and I want. And um, imagine, let's go back to that sailing example. I'm going to milk that one for all it's worth. Yeah. <laughs> um, imagine that you're in like the World Cup of sailing and you're trying to figure everything out, right? Like, so you hop in that boat and you don't, you haven't actually come up with protocols, right? Like a pilot doing a checklist. Um, you, now you have to figure everything out and at the same time figure out where the wind's coming from, who your competitors are, if you're winning, if you're losing, you know, what's the best path to take. If you're figuring all of that out in the moment, then you've already lost. So the key is that you need to build in enough habits and patterns um, to establish that, that long sail and, and that, 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 that um, path that you want to carve out. And then when the unexpected happens, and it will always happen, um, there will be an unexpected wind that blows in your life. Um, it's not going to topple you over because everything else has been set a certain way. And you can still build in um, spontaneity in that. So you can actually calculate, okay, like how much of my life do I want to be? And I don't mean mathematically, but I mean just, just overall at a high level, say I want to be spontaneous on my date nights, okay, with my wife. And I want to say, you know what, we're just going to, we're just going to do the first thing that looks exciting, or we're going to hop in a plane, you know, and go to Hawaii for the weekend. And we're going to introduce something totally different to get my energy up, to, to get a fresh perspective on things, to break up the monotony. You know, that is all, that is all possible. And you don't want to um, abandon that. But at the same time, you want to have a plan and you want to be able to say, okay, like, Everything is going to be done a certain way. I'm not going to, every morning, I'm not going to figure out what I need to do for the day because if I'm, let's say that I, I'm in a bad neighborhood, if, if I'm, I'm fortunate that I don't live in a bad neighborhood, but if I was to be living in a bad neighborhood, if I wake up in the morning and say, hmm, I wonder what I'm going to do today, and then a drug dealer comes to my house, hey, maybe that's what I'm going to do because I didn't have any other plan. So the world will find a way to give you the plan for the day if you don't actually go out and take the plan and make the plan. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Just, yes. <laughs> I, I love it. You're just reaffirming every, this drum I've been beating now for 200 days or whatever it's been. It, it's wonderful. As I shared with you on our first conversation that I want to share with the listeners, you know, Ed and I had a, a scheduled call, I believe it was almost a week ago now, and hopped on the phone. It was much of what I have shared has been all of it has been my own personal life experience. I want to say it again. I don't have formal education as it comes to psychiatry or psychology or any coursework completed in it. These are just things that I have studied, implemented, been shown myself that I'm sharing with you the outcome. And I hop on the phone with Ed and all of a sudden he starts saying terms and like, Hey, just so you know, this is actually an actual medical term. Like this, what you're teaching has validity from a clinical standpoint. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa hold, hold on. I'm just not some I laugh at this. I'm not some jackass just on a microphone, you know, pounding my own drum that there's, there's something here that's deeper. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are medical terms. I mean, you're, you're a very bright and uh, engaging person. You have your eyes uh, open uh, in, in, in many ways you do. And, and you, you, you want to learn as much as possible and you want to learn from others and your own experiences. And um, uh, the difference between, I guess, somebody like you, who's a very savvy coach and somebody who's had a doctorate degree such as myself is that uh, is that we've labeled everything. So I mean, these things that you you've experienced and you're sharing with your audience, maybe you don't always give the exact 
you know, uh, psychological or psychiatric label to it. Um, but the concept is there. Um, now, another psychological, psychiatric concept is is defense mechanisms. I mean, we, uh, and I'm sure being an educated person, you've heard the terms defense mechanisms. You probably are aware of several of them. And uh, I would say that uh, what we do in our field is that we identify those defenses and we, we, we share with our patients, like, here's what, and you got to do it very gingerly and very, very gradually. You have to build that trust first because people are so, they're defended against the idea that they even have defense mechanisms yep. because it shatters their whole worldview and it's less comfortable. Um, and there are some defense mechanisms that are considered mature defense mechanisms and others that are considered uh, neurotic or immature defense mechanisms. And uh, unfortunately, um, human beings tend to have a greater degree of immature neurotic. And, uh, and in fact, there, there is a category of psychotic defense mechanisms as well. Um, and what we want to do is we want to see if we can identify those defense mechanisms and change them and say, I, it no longer serves me to borrow your term. You know, you have to decide, does this serve me or does it not serve me? Does it serve me to feel like I'm always right and I can advise other people on the correct path, but I can't take advice for myself. The world is always giving you information, right? The world is always going to be a mirror. Some people are going to lie to you and some people are going to tell you the truth. But even when they lie to you, there will be a part of you that you see that you haven't seen. And, uh, and, and what you want to do is you want to replace all of those immature, psychotic, and neurotic defense mechanisms and replace them with the mature ones. Yeah. So let, Ed, would you mind sharing just a handful for some of the listeners that might not be as far down their path of progression as maybe yeah. I have been or maybe some others? What would be some... Uh, certainly on the on the the soft side of defense mechanisms some things that we could potentially be open that door towards or at least sh show them the door towards awareness that these defense mechanisms could exist because i truly believe a lot of us we go through life and sure you might be consuming this podcast or other information but you're you're a passive listener versus an active listener and you haven't really fully adopted some of these pieces and parts to realize that like we're all guilty of this. Like I have defense mechanisms. I understand that. Like I, I realize that I could probably list out four or five or six. I'm going to use the wrong terms, but I have them. We all have them. I don't, even the most aware of us are defensive about things. Right. Well, I'm going to start. No, I, I think that's actually a great way to, to frame this conversation. Um, I'm going to start with some of the defense mechanisms that are, although they have impact in your, your life, they're not, as bad. They're bad, but they're not as bad. Um, repression is a defense mechanism. And in fact, you might think that, and you know what I mean by repression. Um, if you've had a bad memory, you repress that memory. A lot of people repress that bad memory and they, they're not even consciously aware of it. And, uh, and until many years later, a therapist or a psychiatrist will bring that out and they'll say, whoa, you know, um, now I remember what happened. There's a danger in that, by the way, too, of, of having recovered memories where a therapist will say, well, are you sure your dad didn't abuse you? Are you sure? And then you say, you know what? Now that you say it, yeah, maybe he did. And then you become more and more convinced of that. So 
So there is a danger in, in going too far in that extreme and, and trying to bring out things that weren't there. Our brain, as you, know, you can tell, our brains are very, just human, the human brain is so incredibly complex, but simple at the same time. Mm-hmm. And um, so some of these defense mechanisms that are, are they're considered neurotic, um, which, and neur- neurosis is sort of like the potential to, f- to feel bad. Uh, yeah, these emotions that I was talking about that are not always helpful, like anger and fear. And that's all part of like a neurotic personality. And we all have elements of that in our lives. And under times of stress, those things come out more and more. You can be like the most mature person in the world, but if somebody crashes into your car drunk and then starts to try and fight you, you know, you might not be like, you know, untouchably, uh, you know, mature about everything. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so, uh, now talking about some of those neurotic, uh, elements that, um, that don't help, help us intellectualization, rationalization. So if you're stuck in a, a dysfunctional relationship or a, a job that you hate, you might intellectualize it and say, well, the reason why I'm in this job is because I, uh, if I don't do this, then my family will be out on the street broke and homeless and all of that. And that touches actually on a cognitive distortion, which is catastrophization and or c- catastrophizing things, overgeneralizing things. Um, so these, these concepts kind of go back and forth. You have these cognitive distortions, and then you also have these defense mechanisms that interrelate with that. And I would say that... Um, so if we talked a little bit about, uh, about neurotic defense mechanisms. Another good example is uh, somebody who may be homosexual who is the first person to throw the stone. Like, like a, a, a person with, uh, in, living in a glass house should not be throwing stones, right? Mm-hmm. So, so if, if, a member of your, if members of your audience uh, are, are sort of closet homosexuals but – say it's immoral and say you'll go to hell and, and they, they're saying that what, what these homosexual, the way that they live is, is immoral, which is all, I think, very um, narrow-minded and untrue. I think people should be able to live the way that they want to live regardless of, as long as it doesn't hurt other people, I think that it's perfectly fine. And that goes for gender, that goes for sexuality, that goes for you know, your career choices, your life choices. Um, but if you are one of those people who, who throws that stone and you live in a glass house, that's called reaction formation. And that's a neurotic defense mechanism because you hate yourself so much and you can't come to terms with the fact that you are a certain way that now you treat other people badly because they're sort of like a representation of what you hate about yourself. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I can, I'll, I'll keep going with some more defense mechanisms, but um, feel free to interrupt. <laughs> no, this, um, is, this is wildly informative, Ed. I mean, I feel like there's so much wisdom that comes from your daily life. And this is not a pontification based off the fact you're a guest. This is heartfelt to me in this moment that there's so many things that all of us, if we choose to, can start to do just incrementally a little bit better every day. You know, and that's what I think attracted me uh, to your podcast the most, which was you say, stop effing lying to yourself, right? Yeah. And and, and stop lying to other people and stop lying for yourself. And if I got your life story um, somewhat correct, that was the moment where you changed your life when it all became different. 
when you said, I'm lying to myself and I'm going to stop lying to myself. And you're probably right. I mean, look, let's face it. You're probably still lying in some ways to yourself. And I don't know what those ways are. And, and the only reason why I say you probably are is because I operate under the assumption that everybody lies to themselves. Some people lie constantly to themselves or others. It's just, that's who they are. They lie, they lie, they lie. Other people lie right at the right time. And in the most important moments, they lie to themselves. So, um, so we all, you know, we all have certain defense mechanisms. There are uh, immature defense mechanisms like passive aggressive uh, uh, actions and behaviors. Um, there's uh, sort of acting out, like stomping your feet, um, like a child. And, um, you know, that's a defense mechanism projecting on other people, things about yourself, um, like you, you, sort of similar to reaction formation where, where you, you project qualities on another person and those qualities, that person might not have those qualities and you've been projecting it like inmates project these qualities on the custody officers who have a really hard job and they project and say, Oh, you're a custody officer. So, um, and it goes into actually distortions as well. Like you're a custody officer. So you must hate me. Um, or you must, uh, it, sort of, uh, it, like it's all, it's personal. Like you, you hate me. You want to mistreat me. Uh, you're an evil person. It's all or nothing thinking, you know, people are not good or evil. They have good and evil parts of themselves. And, and if you think that somebody is purely evil, I mean, I guess historical figures, we can think of some where we say, look, like I can't think of any redeeming quality of this person who's, you know, impacted the world in such a negative way. But in most cases, when you're talking to people, uh, you really ought to, and this is what I talk about with inmates, with, with actual, you know, uh, patients who are not incarcerated as well, is that you have, you, it's really helpful to operate under the assumption that, that most people are good and most people are trying to do the right thing. And if somebody cuts you off in traffic, it's not that they intended to do that, okay? It's not that they're necessarily a bad driver or they're necessarily being inconsiderate. Everybody wants to, it seems like in this world, everybody has a really high bar of what they expect from other people, their behaviors and what's considerate and what's unconsiderate and how that affects me and all of this stuff. If you step back and you say, look, most people are doing the best they know how to do. I'm not saying they're doing the best they can do. I've, very few people are doing the best they can do, but most people are doing the best they know how to do. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you, you don't know what happened. Maybe that person, and it's happened to me too, where, where uh, you know, I, uh, I accidentally cut somebody off and they got really mad at me and gave me the middle finger. And I, I was having a really bad day and I, Honestly, I, I wasn't looking and I cut that person off and I was and, and that person didn't realize that I had a bad day. So you, you have to look at it that way. And then I would say um, and, and if you want to go really extreme, uh, you know, you can have a psychotic level of uh, defense, which is you're, in fact, delusional. Like there's no piece of in that in that subject matter that you're thinking about. There's actually no bit of evidence to suggest that what you're thinking has any semblance to reality. Um, and when you start to get into that, then you start to think, well, okay, do I actually have a psychotic illness? But 
Uh, and when psychotic illness is not necessarily a defense mechanism. It's a biologically driven uh, condition. But what we're talking about mostly is neurotic and immature defense mechanisms that uh, most people who actually don't have a mental illness or, or have or function with a mental illness can learn that they have and can change. And, and, and what you want to do is you want to replace those, those really unhealthy defense mechanisms uh, with actual healthy defense mechanisms. Not all defense mechanisms are unhealthy, by the way. So, okay. so you want to be constantly replacing them with the healthy defense mechanisms. So before we get into healthy defense mechanisms, and because I don't take notes and I got something in my mind that I got I to gotta ask questions, you made mention of you believe that people are inherently good, right? Like that was yeah. – that bad things happen or people have bad moments, but they're not inherently bad. Yeah. Now, I am not a theological scholar, and I know religion is typically one of those taboo subjects, but from having some guests on recently that have tons of religious uh, studies under their belt, there are principles, of course, in the Bible that would state that people are inherently bad, that we're flawed, <laughs> and that we are needing salvation from a higher source in order to operate in the vein of good. However, it seems like a man like yourself, and this is not, I'm not, as, Ed, we haven't discussed religion. I have no idea what your beliefs are. So if, if this gets too dicey, I'm okay stepping back from the conversation. I just find it to be interesting that it seems like the more intellectual individual that I speak to, almost 100% of the time, the more they start having a uniqueness of their understanding or acceptance of what religion really could be. Yeah. Well, uh, let me, let me put you out of your doubt, uh, out of your, um, I guess, uh, doubt. Uh, I, I'm actually agnostic. Okay. So, and I try to live my life in an agnostic way and agnostic, agnostic for and the audience who may not be aware is basically saying, I don't know. And some people say that's a cop out, you know, like you don't, if you, if you don't believe in something, you'll fall for anything. But I don't, I don't agree with that. I think that, uh, and there are people that are incredibly close to me that are religious and that's perfectly fine. And it's a matter of whether it serves them or not, not in some cases, religion serves them greatly. And I think it's wonderful. And, uh, in some cases it doesn't serve them. So it's a matter of personal choice. And I myself am agnostic. I believe that there is, uh, some, a higher power that created everything because naturally the universe doesn't make sense to me. Like what happens at the end of the universe? What, is there anything behind that? How can there be nothing behind that? Or how can it go on forever? I mean, these things are just mind blowing. And I don't have, I, I don't have the brain power, the capacity to know. Mm -hmm. um, all that I, all that I really can say is that I don't know. And I, I think that there's power to that, to, the power to say, I don't know. And some people use religion for that purpose. And they say, you know, like Jesus take the wheel, right? And so it's all variations of the same thing to say that, and there is actually a prayer that, you know, you and I have discussed before that I think encapsulates the essence of what it takes to heal, to have and have an adaptive life and to have a, a great life. It's, uh, it's the serenity prayer. Mm -hmm. And you know the serenity prayer, right? Of course. <laughs> Yeah. So um, God grant me the serenity to accept the change, the, the things that I cannot change, the power and courage to to accept uh, to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And um, 
So that comes from a religious point of view and that serves people. And, and that, that actually serves me being an agnostic person that actually serves me. And I say, whatever it is, God or higher power, whatever it is that created me or whatever it is that drives me. Um, I want that to accept the things that I want that to help me have the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change and to change the things that I can. Yeah. So, yeah, I'll stop there. <laughs> no, no, no. It, it, this, is, this is brilliant. So that's one of the questions I also get from time to time, Ed, is, is I've discussed and, and shared my path towards the, I'll call it the, the metaphysics world and, and what that looks like and working on my PhD studies there. And really the, the, the base level difference is in most quote unquote religions, like we'll say Christianity, there's the belief that men is inherently evil or flawed. Right. And then we start talking metaphysics there's right. such overlap that the metaphysics world believes what you just said, that people are inherently good, that we're all part of wanting to be better people and that we make decisions that aren't necessarily the best or we make some, we skin our knees, but that we are good versus evil. Yeah. This is a, a lesson that all inmates and all free people need to really learn that, that if you focus on the problem, the problem gets bigger. If you focus on the solution, the solution gets better. It's the self-fulfilled prophecy. If I, Ryan, if I think, man, that Ryan is such an a-hole, you know, like I, wh- I wouldn't get the best out of you and you treat me that way. Or maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't. But, but in, I, I, you know, everybody that you treat, if you treat them like they're good, then you're going to see the good. Like, like you, they say that if you smile, the world smiles with you. Right? Yeah. So, so. And, and inmates have oftentimes looked, because of their life, their background of trauma, they have a certain level of distrust and um, they can't trust other people and they think that other people have bad intentions. And the more traumatic your experience, the more you're going to think that other people are out to get you and trying to harm you and the world is cruel and, and hopeless. Um, so, so what I try to teach my patients is that if you have that paradigm shift, that mind shift, and say, you know what, I don't know what that officer went through today. I don't know how good or bad they are. They may be a loving father. They may work in the community to help people like me outside of the bars uh, who are trying to get back on their feet. You never know. And I'm constantly surprised to learn about things uh, that people in my life have been doing secretly to help other people. And uh, you just have to come from that. It's healthy to come from that point of view because now you unlock the good parts of the world or the, the, the parts that serve you as opposed to parts that don't serve you. And you have to, there has to be a certain level of surrender there. You have to surrender the idea uh, that you know everything. You have to surrender these preconceived notions and you have to actually stop fighting sometimes. Like these inmates, they, they're, they're constantly like this, you know, with their fists up, ready to fight. They're on guard. Sometimes you need to live life with an open hand and say, you know what? Like, I'm not going to clench my fist. I'm going to open the hand and see what life has to give me and see what I can give life and what I can give other people. And once you start connecting in that way, the world becomes different. The world can be as evil or as good as you want it to be. Yeah, absolutely. And we will have to have a whole separate episode as we get into this, you know, what I call the universal oneness or metaphysics or what you put out is what you get back. Because to me, the energetic exchange, if, if we adhere to the fact that 
matter can neither be created or destroyed, and by that neither can energy, then every good thought would have to be transmitted through another good thought. And again, it's a whole a whole separate conversation for a whole separate yeah. episode. I just love the fact that you shared such an impactful moment right there of just putting out what you want to get back. And I think there's a part of life that it, I adhere to the fact that it's actually healthy to be selfish in small doses. Oh, and, of course. And it, it's, a, it's a taboo subject as I start to speak with some of my, I'll say clients or people that I work with that, you know, most of our lives or most of my life, I was a people pleaser. You know, I want to make sure everybody else had what they needed and I didn't care and I was adverse to conflict. I did all these things that now I can see from my current vantage point. But in that, I was never doing things for myself, although I had the internal desire to do them. And so I can't say they were manifesting, but that, that energy was coming out somewhere else. I was either holding space and time over women and, and being unfaithful. I was, you know, sedating with alcohol or, I mean, drugs, steroids, but nonetheless, those are drugs. I don't want to downplay what they are, but is that is that just me blabbing or is that something no, that's that, actually a principle? That's deeply rooted in psychological theory and, and, uh, and practice. And there is such a thing called dialectical behavioral therapy um, where it, it is actually focused on that dichotomous nature of things like, like acceptance versus change. Um, and, and what you talk about with balance, achieving balance as part of the, is it that core four, right? The mm -hmm. balance is one of them. Yep. Um, you do have to, that, that speaks also to the serenity prayer, balancing acceptance versus change and dialectical behavioral therapy, which is used oftentimes for the people who are the most distorted in their thinking, the most defended in their thinking. It's a way of, of, of looking at things as, as dichotomous, as uh, it's, there's not, it's never all black and white. It's always a balance. And, you always want to be able to, by, by being selfish in a way and taking care of yourself, you can then put the oxygen mask on somebody else, right? You put the oxygen mask on yourself, then you put it on somebody else. If you don't take care of yourself, then you can't take care of anyone else. Um, now, as far as acceptance versus change, um, you, that, 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 again, I'm going to go back to, to the prison system and the, and the jail systems. Um, it's all a balance there. You surrender. You surrender this, this idea that you have power and control over, every, over, over other people. The real power is to let go of the sense that you need to control other people. And that honestly, I mean, like, you know, I struggle with that. Everybody struggles with that. If you see somebody doing something that, that does not serve them, you want to step in and say, dude, you know, like you got to change that because that's not serving you. And it comes from a place of judgment. It's self-satisfying because we get to judge other people. And for some reason, the sense of wanting to judge other people is, is pretty deeply ingrained in a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And we need to let go of that sense of judgment and say, you know, we don't know what, this, what brought that person to that point of view. And we, we cannot uh, have the, the narcissistic perspective that I can change somebody. Um, you can change somebody only in the sense that you can show them that there is an opportunity to change by showing them that that door exists, but you can't force them to change. You can't force self-awareness. You can't force them through that door. And um, if you, and I think the skill of that is learning where that line is. Some people actually want to be told the truth. And so you get to a point at which you reach that line where they no longer want you to tell them the truth. And it's, it's okay. You back off. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we as, as psychiatrists are skilled in finding that line to say, okay, how far can we push? How much can this person grow right now? Um, I'm also a, a, a board certified in addiction medicine as well as forensic psychiatry. And so addictions is a really uh, important part of, uh, of, of my career and what the types of patients that I uh, like to deal with. And in fact, um, 90% of the people that are in prison have had either a history of substance use disorders and, uh, or, or currently actually use substances. Uh, methamphetamine is huge in California. Um, it's devastating. But so, so um, when you talk about change, there's a pre-contemplative state of change where, where people are not even ready to, to even think about it, about change. And, and then there's a contemplative state of change where you, uh, or a stage of change where you say, you know what, I think maybe I need to change. And then there's the action stage, and then there's the maintenance stage. Um, and I would say most people in my experience are in the pre-contemplative state of change, and my goal is not to change them. My goal is to get them to start thinking about change. Mm-hmm. To say, well, and it's feed it back and say, you know what, like when you did that to that officer, when you yelled at them, him, so what happened there? Like, oh, well, I actually had, I was put in seclusion or restraints or they pepper sprayed me or I got, I broke the glass and this happens. They break the glass on their cell and now they get sent to prison for five years. And then so what you do is you say, okay, did that action serve you or did it not serve you? And, and uh, when you mirror that and you, you feed it back to them, then they start to click. And if it comes from them, then there's a greater chance that they're going to make that shift. Um, now that goes with addictions as well. I mean, some people are just not ready. They're just not ready to give up meth. They're not ready to give up heroin. And, uh, you know, you, you can only really just reflect back and say, okay, like, what do you want out of your life? Like, is this fine? Like, do you want to be strung up on drugs? Um, I've seen people who were, who were uh, so bad on meth. I mean, just I continue to see people who are so addicted to methamphetamine, heroin, alcohol. Alcohol can be some of the worst addiction, by the way. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they look like it's just completely they've been eviscerated. And you look at them and you say, well, are you ready to actually look at yourself and change? And I would say most of them are not. They're just not. And you just have to support them and, and tell them, look, you're not ready right now. When you are ready, I will be here for you. But by the way, time is against you on this one, okay? Like you can't keep taking drugs and expect that your body is not going to deteriorate and you might die. So, so think about whether you want to change because your life is on the line. Yeah, and, and Ed, I have a, a strong male listener base to this, this show. And I know a lot of people that message me don't believe they have an addiction. But then we start touching base, at least from my, uh, my personal demographic, you know, the Generation X, Generation Y or Z, where pornography and the addiction to pornography, and I'm not saying I'm for or against porn, I, it can serve its purpose, I suppose, in its own right, but that the addiction and the outcome of over-sexualization and over-stimulation, how that dumbs down or waters down the interaction that a man can actually have with a woman in the presence of you know one-on-one interaction, that porn addiction, it doesn't mean that you're 
necessarily from where I would view it that you're racing home every day after work or you're sneaking off to the bathroom to look at porn during the day. But to me as an addiction, and I probably, I should probably just ask you, how can one, we'll just say porn specifically, not if, how could one start to realize that there could be an addictive connection to porn? So, so it goes with the definition of addiction itself. And uh, addiction is defined by are you, uh, whether it's drugs or porn or anything really, compute, uh, computer games, addiction is uh, defined by are you spending an excessive amount of time either procuring what you're trying to, to feed yourself or actually feeding yourself. Is that, so that's one part of the definition. The other part is, is it interfering with your relationships? Um, so, so you look at that and that example is that, is porn interfering with your relationship? Yes or no. Is it, are you spending a lot of time where you could be more productive and fulfilling yourself in other ways? Um, is, is that, is that something that is, uh, you know, uh, happening with you? Uh, another part of the de definition of addiction is, do you need more and more of it as time goes on? Uh, do you need more specific types of it? Like some people with alcohol addiction, they naturally, this is the pattern of alcohol addiction. It starts with, you know, like teenage years, you, you drink, you know, Jack Daniels or Mad Dog or, wine or beer or whatever it is tequila um i'm sure we've all been there where we experimented with with different types of alcohol yeah. but then the people who get addicted and there's a strong biological component of it too so that you need to be aware of that too uh, of addiction there's a strong biological component but um uh so so as time goes on uh people who are addicted to alcohol they have their drink they have their specific drink now, or, or with porn, it could be a specific website. With, uh, with drugs, it could be methamphetamine or crack cocaine. And they narrow and narrow and narrow. I mean, some people, it doesn't mean that if you use everything, you're not addicted, right? right. <laughs> so if you're using heroin today and, and uh, cocaine tomorrow, uh, you can't say, well, Dr. Kaftarian said that it, it, I'm not specific enough, so therefore I'm not addicted. Uh, there are other parts of that definition that are also important. Like, are you getting into trouble with the law? Are you um, actually doing damage to your brain or to your body? Uh, that is also part of that definition. And then also, like, do you need it to function on a day-to-day -day basis? Like, if you don't do it, then are you going to be able to function? And people have – and that's what's so hard about change because – to a certain degree, you have to actually go through a level of dysfunction and things need to get worse before they get better. And so if you're addicted to a cycle of habits or behaviors or drugs or anything, um, that or even sugar or carbs, you know, uh, that period where you're, you're detoxing off of whatever it is that you've been addicted to, that's going to be super hard. And what you need to do is you need to be aware of that and plan for that. Um, now there is, and please stop me if I'm going on, to, on and on, but, uh, if, um, I want to sort of switch gears here a little bit to illustrate an example. Um, uh, another wise philosopher, Mike Tyson once wrote, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> I, I, you know what? I, I laugh because I think it's, people can have lessons, whether they have a doctorate degree uh, or, or not, or, or not even a high school education. Everybody brings them, 
brings with them lessons. I learn constantly from my patients. Mm-hmm. I learn just as much from them as they learn from me. But as, as I was saying, uh, Mike Tyson, uh, he, he actually, uh, he's credited to say that everybody has a plan until they're punched in the face. And I want to actually connect that to a story you've told, which is, you know, when you're in the ring and you're fighting somebody, you get punched in that face, you start, you get angry, right? Yeah. And, and you just want to just murder that person, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, I don't know, and I can't recall whether that served you or doesn't serve you, but in some cases, a boxer would maybe served by that if they can harness that anger appropriately. Um, but, but when you're punched in the face, sometimes you can, if you have, if you have built in habits where, and you've planned for that being punched in the face, then you can actually rise to the occasion and you can fight back. Sometimes when you're punched in the face and when I say punched in the face, I don't just mean literally. I also mean if you get in a car accident, if you get paralyzed, that's a, a very bad case, but it happens. If somebody that you love dies, you know, those kind of things are a huge punch in the gut, punch in the face. And the question is, are you going to, of course you mourn for the loss, but, but are you going to rise? Or are you going to shrink to that? Are you going to make excuses and say, well, I have really bad luck. I don't believe in luck. I believe that you make your own luck. And um, yes, certain bad things can happen in your life. But if you prepare for that ahead of time and say, I know that no matter what happens in life, life will always hand me a wrench. And so I want to optimize my life in such a way where I put myself in enough good positions where, where, um, where good luck will, ma- will be maximized. But I still know that things will happen. And when that happens, here's how I'm going to deal with it. And when I talk with inmates, that, that's classic. I mean, you know, if they're not planning for what's going to happen when they get released, then, uh, then they're going to get punched in the face and they're not, not going to know how to react to that. They're going to get disoriented, confused, depressed, angry, and they're going to shrink to the occasion and they're going to shrivel up and they're going to die. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so Ed, in that you started, you brought up in the, in the pattern habit or pattern forming habits that could elicit or be connected to addiction. You know, yeah. I'll, I'll tie this to porn that, we all are, we've already established that we're predisposed to having patterns that have operated our lives. It's, it's inside of us. It's inside of our DNA and ends up in some form. And again, not to say that your brain, some people aren't predisposed to DNA to have addictive patterns inside themselves, but yeah. you take it something like porn that I don't know, you know, we've been exposed to it at some point. It becomes this habit. It's habitual yeah. use. You know, if you're somebody that views porn at a certain time of the day consistently, it yeah. can be something as small as what I refer to as a pattern, pattern interrupt to break the cycle of not allowing yourself in that moment to go back to the same place, time and energy just to see that. Sure. You're going to get punched in the face there. I mean, Ed, you said it like it's, you, you don't have that, that carnal response in that moment. You're not getting that momentary release of what you're searching for, but you also probably are not going to die on the backside of not looking up right. porn at three thirty-five on, you know, every, every weekday. Cause you get off of work yeah. or whatever it is. And that it only can take that small shift to start to realize that there's another path to go down, which has a greater possibility than the one you've been living on. Well, I I think that's a very good point and very astute observation on your part. I would say that this speaks to uh, different parts of your brain. I mean, uh, there's the reward pathway of the brain, which is, I think, what you were touching on. 
um, and the frontal cortex with, 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 which is like exec, excuse me, executive function and calculated decisions and all of that. And you have to allow those two parts of the brain to work together to, to get you to where you want to be. Now, if your reward path, and some people, the so-called addictive brains, their reward pathway for things like porn and drugs is so incredibly strong. What happens is that um, when you do something that gives you pleasure, and if you have an addictive type of brain, and everybody has the reward pathway, but some people have such a strong reward pathway where where uh, it will overpower their executive mind. It, it will overpower. They know that it's not good what they're doing, but they just cannot help it because that reward pathway has a surge of dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter, which is like, it's basically brain, the brain's crack, right? Mm -hmm. so, so when you do something that gives you pleasure um, and you get into a habit of doing it, then, uh, then you're your, uh, the, the parts of your brain, and we won't get into it unless you want me to, but those specific parts of the brain that release dopamine, they affect these other parts of the brain and completely take over. And, um, and whether that's alcohol or porn or meth or anything else, um, you do have to have that pattern interrupt. And to a certain degree, that has to come from your, your, your conscious mind. You have to say, you have to say, I am consciously aware that deep inside my brain, I am being driven by this reward pathway. And I have to say, look, right now, the inner part of my brain is overpowering the outer part of my brain. And I have to reestablish that balance. Now, you don't want to reestablish it to the point at which you're completely calculated with every single thing that you do. And you don't allow yourself to enjoy things and be human. Um, but, you also, but you also don't want to let that part of the brain take control. And so I, I don't know if I answered your question, but, but that's pretty much the perspective of somebody that, that has an, a background in treating people with addictions. It's you got to make them aware that there is an actual uh, physiological reason behind this and there are actual neurotransmitters at work and you can allow them to continue or you can say enough is enough. I'm going to break that habit. And then once you create a different habit, then the rewards are more toward that. Um, like if you eat healthy, then, then you, you delight at the fact that you're going to have a healthy meal and you're disgusted by fried foods and, and processed and foods with preservatives. Like I'm sure you've probably got, gotten to that point, right, Ryan? Where yes. You, right. So, so you, I mean, the idea of, of treating your body poorly is disgusting to you. And you, what you feed, like I said, if you feed the solution, the solution will get better. If you feed the problem, the problem gets better, uh, gets bigger. Yeah. So I don't want to bounce one more concept off of you to, to see, I want to, I want to through the ed test. I'm going to call it. I want to know if this is something that again, this manufactured thing I came up with, or if there's some sort of root of actual truth to this. So I believe that as men specifically, I can only speak to the, the men here. I suppose it could also attach to a woman. But we were told, my generation was told, in order to quote unquote be a man, it meant to keep a stiff upper lip, to not show emotion, to not, to not ever let somebody see you sweat. And that was the example that was put forth from, I'll say, my father. And in yeah. that, throughout life, all these things happen. Like life happens to us. And there's plenty of times where I want to cry or act out or feel sad or angry or whatever the emotions are, but based off of the tribalism, or at least my father, I'm told that that's wrong. So I don't do anything with them. 
but those emotions still existed for me. They're real to me. Yeah. And eventually at some point in life, there's a boil over part, whether it's an addiction, addiction gets formed, whether it's a, I'll say a replacement with the fact of I'm getting rid of this energy somewhere else, but not having the ability or being taught how to process emotions in a healthy capacity at a young age creates this strange anomaly as an adult that those habits that we formed at it from our, from our parents potentially at that young age is now dictating how we're operating for me as a man and how yeah. I view emotions. Like what's acceptable? Like for me to cry right now because I'm moved took a long time to be able to understand that it's not only okay that I should cry if it's what I need to do in the moment and it doesn't make me less or more than anybody. It's just my presence of emotion in the current day form. Do you right. believe this to be something that's truthful or am I like, again, did I bump my head when I came to work this morning? No, you did not bump your head. I mean, I, I, it's you're hundred percent right on point. I, it's amazing the power that our parental figures um, have on us, whether they're they even whether they've been in our lives, even whether they're alive or dead. That self object, as we call it, that that sense of the 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 parent inside of us that's telling me whether we're doing right or wrong, that judges us, and and sometimes it can be you know, uh, I mean look, uh, parents can, can be good and bad all at the same time. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I know for myself that I'm constantly trying to be a better parent. And I know that, I mean, my goal is to basically not screw up. Right. I mean, like I, I know that I will make mistakes as a parent, but the idea for the, the audience, the, the child that I'm speaking to in the audience is that you have to first appreciate the power that, that people have had over you. And, uh, and you have to kind of establish how much power they will continue to have in your lives. And in some cases, you may want them to have more power. In some cases, you want them to have less power. Um, now, when it comes to these deeply ingrained feelings that you're talking about that come out, you know, that, that, that you've been trained to repress, that, that's repression, right? That's a defense mechanism we talked about. So... Um, there is actually healthy defense called suppression and, and, and unhealthy or, or um, uh, neurotic defense that is called repression. Repression is when you bury everything and you're, it's mostly unconscious. And, and like the, this sense of you're, you're, you're a man, so you're not supposed to cry. You know, that has been trained, you've been trained on that. And so now it's been repressed down deep inside of you. And you may not always think consciously, oh, I'm a man, I'm, I'm supposed to not cry. But it's been repressed and you've been trained to learn that. Now, suppression is a healthy defense mechanism. And that's when you decide that the feeling is not going to have power over you in the moment. Now, you can have that feeling, but, the, but you get to decide how to channel that feeling. Or you get to decide whether that feeling needs to carry space in your life at this particular moment. Let me give you an example. Um, a lot of people have the natural ability to, to have the healthy suppression defense mechanism. Let's say that, you know, your child, God forbid, you're in an accident and, and, and it's complete chaos. Now, and you, you're scared and you're, you're worried and you're sad. Maybe 
maybe something bad happened to somebody else and, 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 and you can't do anything about it and you, you want to be sad for that person, but maybe there's somebody else that's caught in the wreckage and you, you need to attend to that person. So suppression is a healthy defense of saying, I'm defending myself against these feelings because I do not have time right now to be sad. I need to act. Mm -hmm. And that's healthy, that's natural, and that's good. Um, repression, on the other hand, is, is pushing these deep, deep and re repression is more of a long-term thing where you, you push down on it and you don't allow those feelings to come out. Um, now, what you want to do is you want to allow those, those, so the trauma that is within you um, that has never been addressed, there is an energy in there. There is, a, there is an, a person in there. There's a spirit. There's a soul in there that wants to take over and, and is, wants, wants to kind of control from behind the scenes without letting your, your mind know about it. And so it's sort of making you decide on certain things like, uh, making you decide that you never want to go skiing because you you hurt yourself while you were skiing, or it may you may decide you never want to get on a plane because you know somebody that you knew died in a plane. You know, you know those kind of things are not healthy. Um, you want to be able to understand that it's deep within yourself the this repressed defense mechanism and these uh, these self objects, these forces that are within you that have told you to act a certain way. So anyway, I'll stop there. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I love, I love where we're at, Ed. I mean, there's just, this is literally one of those rare times of my life as an interviewer that if, if we could just have a 24 hour show, like just, <laughs> just keep going and see what comes out. I mean, this, this never gets old for me because I am truly fascinated with how the human mind works and how the, I'll call it the energy of our soul and how life's yeah. events cause different events in the future or in the present and just how all these things are intertwined. So I love what you've shared so far with us. And I, I say so far because inevitably I know this is not a one part interview. There's going to be another day where I, I beg you, I can't even say ask that I beg you for some more of your time as I know That's it's very valuable it. and, and to come back on. But in, in light of that, Ed, if, if we were to draw this more towards a conclusion and talk about one impactful tool that you would want to leave the audience with that could take them and just give them a new possibility at life. One thing that maybe we haven't covered yet. One thing that give them an, I'll call it a, a new operating system to download. What would that be? Okay. So I would call it the daily three pointer. And that's something that I've, I've learned for myself. It's something that I created and that I share with uh, patients which is um, you, so every day is a canvas, right? You, you get to create the day and there are certain things in the day that happen and there are certain things that you make happen. And so what I do is I, I have three points in the day. When I get up in the morning, I, uh, I think to myself, what kind of person do I wanna be? And I actually have it written down on my wall and I wanna be the kind of person that stays calm, stays driven, focused, uh, I don't want to worry. I don't want to assume. I don't want to compare. I don't want to complain. I don't want to explain. I don't want to expect. I don't want to argue. And I want to have gratitude. And I don't want to have regret. And so I look at that every day and I say, okay, point number one, um, this is the pregame, right? And in in, in, if you look at it like sports, I'm a big fan of sports. And mm -hmm. uh, the daily three-pointer starts with the pregame ritual of saying, um, God grant me the serenity to, to change the things that I can change and to accept the things that I cannot. 
And so I start with that mindset and I say, this is the kind of person that I want to be. That's point one. Uh, that's the pregame. Now it's the game. The actual game is living the day. And what you want to be is mindful. You know, you want to go through the day um, and carry with you the kind of person that you want to be. You want to look at other people as generally good. You want to look at the positive and, and make the positive bigger in your life and not focus as much on the negative. Um, and, and that is being mindful. And even the negative, you know, your emotions and your, your experiences, you, want to, you don't want to necessarily repress that. But what you want to do is you want to be mindful of that and say, oh, I got mad. Why did I get mad? Um, does that make sense that I get mad? Did I, was I right about that? Maybe I'm not right about that. Maybe that person had a different intention. Maybe I had a different intention. Um, so, so that's called being mindful. And that is part of dialectical behavioral therapy, which is a whole school of thought in psychology. Then that's point number two. That's the, the game. Now it's the post game at nighttime when everyone's asleep. I look back at that wall and I say, was I calm? Was I driven? Was I focused? Did I worry? Did I assume? Did I compare? Did I complain? Did I explain? Did I expect? Did I argue? Did I have gratitude? Did I regret? And I look back and I say, what did I change that I could have changed? And what did I not change that I could have changed? What are the things that I accepted that I should accept? What are the things that I didn't accept that I should have accepted. And you look back at that and ultimately at the end of the daily three pointer, you remain with gratitude and you say, no matter what happened today, I have gratitude that I was able to learn from that day. And I'm, I'm just, I'm in awe. I'm, I'm, I'm humbled and honored to have been able to share this time and space with you and literally get to share such powerful lessons and wisdom not only that I received it from you, but we get to share it with so many people. I, I couldn't be happier for our time together. Thank you so much for being on the show. It was a pleasure, and I appreciate everything you're doing for your uh, 120 million people that you're going to help. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that. I honor that, and I certainly will fulfill that commitment given enough time. I will outlast the suck and make sure to check that box before I'm buried in the dirt. You're doing it. You're already on the path, and I appreciate being given the time and space to share some of my insights, and uh, I, I, I wish you a blessed life. Thank you very much, Ed. So as always, in typical 15 minutes to freedom fashion, if you take the lessons and skills that Ed shared with you, the different ways to view the world, hit your daily three-pointer, every day you'll end up getting shit done.